The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, welcome. You guys are really chatty today. I love that. We've got to be chatty. As we say all the time, when you're a mobile church, we don't have lots of space and time to hang out because we're stacking chairs. And so... Whatever time we can get to connect as a body, I love that. I love hearing you chat with one another. Uh, how cool would it be if uh, every Sunday, if you lift your eyes up and look for someone you didn't know and invited them to lunch? And after service, you joined with someone and broke bread and got to know new people and the body of Christ deepened in relationship each week. If we would commit ourselves to that, wouldn't, be, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. Really glad you're worshiping with us. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And you're catching us uh, on a sermon series through the, the book of Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 11 today. We're starting that great chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. I encourage you to open up there. We had a, a really special weekend this weekend as the Stevens family. My youngest daughter, Alexandria, graduated from high school. So I'm very happy for her. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because my wife and I, we were both like athletes. Uh, in, and so we, we were kind of cliche athletes in, in high school and college. So our grades weren't the best. Uh, but, we, but we did sports. My daughter's a great athlete. She's going to play basketball next year at SOU. But she also got all these weird cords. I'm like, what are all those cords around your neck? It's like, oh, honors this, honors that. I'm like, oh, you're so smart. Must take after your dad. And my mother-in-law is here today. So very, it's a very special weekend for the Stevens family. Uh, so so we, we started the series back in, in, in uh, November. And we've been journeying through this book. And like we've said previously, the, the first ten and a half chapters of Hebrews are dedicated to kind of upholding Jesus to this audience. And, and in all the unique and multifaceted ways that, that he is the Christ, that he is worship worthy, that he is superior, greater, truer. The author spent ten and a half chapters of, of, of very masterfully painting a portrait of Christ. And then beginning in the middle of chapter 10 and through the rest of the book, he switches to this call to endurance, to faithful endurance. And so you could say the first 10 and a half chapters in a sense were indicative. They were giving us the picture of, what it, of who God is and who, Christ, who God is in Christ. And you could say that the last three and a half chapters are imperative. Okay, so what do we now do with Jesus in light of who he is and what it means for us? That's what he was saying to the original audience, and today as we gather under the preached word today, that's what God is saying to us. So, let's read the first three verses, the very oft-quoted first three verses of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. No doubt, if you are a Bible person, or if you are a church person, you have no doubt heard, and probably many of you have memorized verse 1, maybe in different translations, because different translations tend to use different words. But here in the ESV, the translation we use, the author defines faith as both assurance and conviction. And in these two words, though they're translated differently in different translations of the Bible, there is this sense of, of sureness and of trustworthiness. As I read this week in a commentary, we see that faith, according to the author of Hebrews, faith is not a vague hope grounded in imaginary wishful thinking. 
Faith is not some superstitious, blind hope based on cross fingers and rabbit's feet. That's not what faith is. As we, as we look and as we'll unpack through the course of the teaching today, we'll see that biblical faith is a confident trust in God's promise-making and promise-keeping character. He's trustworthy. Biblical faith, then, therefore, looks to the future with confidence. And though uh, promise fulfillment may not have yet been fully realized, biblical faith trusts that it'll come to pass. Based on the trustworthiness of the promise maker, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we gather today in this place, as we focus our attention, our hearts, and our minds on these, these three words or these three verses in this picture of faith that you've given us through this author, these words that you've inspired. God, I just pray that you would, by your spirit, you would do a work in us. God, that you would waken up our faith, that you would inform our faith, that you would put, you would fan the flames of faith in our hearts, and God, that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would hold fast to you, that we would draw near to you, that you would be the steadfast and sure anchor to our soul. God, meet us today in this place. God, make us a people, collectively and individually, of deep and abiding faith. We love you. We invite you to meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you probably remember this last winter during the NFL season, uh, towards the end of the season in Buffalo, New York, the, the Bills were playing the Bengals and DeMar Hamlin, this, this defensive back for the Bills, uh, had a collision, got up, clutched his chest and fell to the ground unresponsive. And the medical professionals rushed out to the field. They applied a defibrillator. They shocked DeMar back to, to life. And NFL players gathered in circles to pray. People around the country began to pray. Even TV personalities live on air began to pray. It was a pretty remarkable story. I mean, if you had a chance to witness it, it was, it was, it was incredible in a world that's radically hurling towards uh, just abject secularism to see all of a sudden the prayers we lifted up for Damar and, and he lived, miraculously lived and many credit the prayers of millions to saving Damar's life and I think he does as well. So that was a really cool story. I loved watching it. A lot of really cool displays of public faith. And yet there was another part of that story as it unfolded that I couldn't help but notice and it's this idea that, that people talk about being uh, men and women of faith. And we heard lots of people, TV personalities, celebrities, athletes, I'm a person of faith, I'm a person of faith, I'm a person of faith. And that was kind of the language that was used. And, and I think I, I want to give people the benefit of doubt. I, I have no doubt that there are men and women who love Jesus who, who use that, that, that vernacular. I'm, I'm a person of faith. Because maybe they know or they realize that the name of Jesus can be divisive and it can be censored and it kind of puts a lightning rod on you. So I think a lot of people who might have a real and abiding faith in Jesus don't say, I have a faith in Jesus Christ. They just simply say, I'm a person of faith. And, and we sort of infer the conclusion. And yet, I also know that there is this culture, this sort of, this pervasive culture within our society or this this. This way of communicating where we, we, we talk about being people of faith and it's as if faith is the end in and of itself. Have you noticed that? It's like, it's like this culture where we have faith in faith or hope in hope. And it, and it seems culturally acceptable to have faith in faith. We say things like just believe, you got to have faith, I'm a person of faith. And, and again, I'm not trying to cast stones, I'm really not. But it's like, okay, what does that mean to have faith in faith? Is that not just like a wishful thinking, fingers crossed, rabbit's foot, 
pull a rabbit out of the hat sort of positive thinking sort of faith. I read this week that the current cultural sentiment is that you, you somehow have faith in faith and if you do everything's going to be okay. Just, be a per- just believe. So I've been thinking about that. Especially in light of our text today. What is faith? How would you define faith? If I asked you, hey, what is faith? How, how would you define it? The author here uses the words assurance and conviction in relationship to faith. And my experience has been in Christian circles over the years that this is kind of a confusing area for us. Like, what, what is faith? I've seen in, in some circles where faith is often seen as some sort of a mysterious internal power. That with enough belief, enough wishful thinking, one is, is able to amass or accumulate some sort of electrical energy field. And if they have enough faith, they can then begin to wield it for supernatural action, like this internally focused thing. And I've heard false teachers, heretics, use the phrase force of faith. It's abhorrent, but they say things like, you know, just like there is a force of gravity, if you have enough faith, you can accumulate this force and you can begin to wield the force of faith to make anything happen that you want to make happen. You can speak money into your wallet. You can speak youth over your bodies. You can speak favor over your your lives. That's gross. In other words, faith has become in many circles this internal force that grows in power The more wishful your thinking becomes, the more fervent your belief is, the the more blind your belief is. But if you think about it critically, this line of thinking, if this is the definition of faith, faith becomes way more about man than it is about God. It is a man-centered faith, not a God-focused faith. This New Testament word for faith is, is pistis. It's a Greek word. And I'm not an expert in Greek language, but I've been reading a book lately that, where the author is really, the whole point of the book is he's sort of trying to give us a broader understanding of the word pistis and the word that our English translations translate into faith. It's 25 times that word appears in our chapter, chapter 11, in faith, in faith, in faith, the whole theme of this chapter. And this word pistis, it's much more broad than when we as Westerners with English language, we think of the word faith, we tend to think of it in a narrow sense. And the author of this book says, no, 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 we got to understand this Greek word has a much broader implication when it comes to faith. It's tied to issues of belief and trust and salvation and allegiance and works and action. There's a lot more to the word faith than what our English translations and our English Western minds tend to understand when we read these passages. And I have not fully decided if I'm endorsing the book or not, but I appreciate the work he's doing in the word pistis. It's been helpful. I think we, we tend to think of faith is Westerners, as this highly personalized, inward-focused thing. Faith becomes more about us and our personal salvation than about the one to whom our faith is directed. That's kind of one of our individualized tendencies as, as Americans and as Westerners. In his book, this gentleman I've been reading, Matthew Bates, his book has got a salacious title. The title of his book is Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Interesting title. One thing he does do that I think is helpful is he provides a picture of what faith is not. Maybe that's a way to help for us today. Like what, 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 what isn't faith that, that maybe we have tended to think of faith as? So I'm going to give you three pictures of what faith is not before we get into what faith is. Number one, faith is not the opposite of evidence-based assessment of truth. 
Faith is not the opposite of evidence-based assessment of truth. I think about when I was living in Idaho years ago, I was a high school teacher, and I had all these kids I loved. These, I was a coach and stuff, and there's amazing families, uh, and my, our town was highly uh, LDS, lots and lots of Mormons in our town. And it was super intriguing to me because I was coming, to, coming alive in Christ and my faith in Christ, and, and I was teaching these amazing kids from wonderful families that were so kind and community-minded and moral and thoughtful and well-dressed and well-behaved, and they were Mormon kids. And so I wanted to know what more the, the, the Mormon faith believed. And so I spent several years of my life, my wife will tell you, uh, just diving into anything I could get my hands on to understand the history, the doctrine, the beliefs, the evolution of the LDS church. And I became, with more study, just utterly convinced of its absolute untruthfulness, that it's a cult, that it's a lie, it's, it's, the, it's a religion of Satan himself. I became convinced. And I love these kids. And I love these parents. And I wanted them more than anything to come to faith in Christ, not the perversion of Christ that we find in the Book of Mormon and in the Mormon doctrines. And, and there, there's several, okay, there's one uh, conversation uh, that I was just sharing with the staff last week in particular, I'll, I'll never forget. There's a guy that I taught with and he was a Mormon and I, and I coached his son and he was a teacher in the school I was teaching and, and I was just getting ready to leave Idaho to move to Wisconsin to begin my life as a pastor. And I was working in this lumber yard and, and Glenn pulls into the lumber yard and, and I'm talking to him because we were, you know, co-workers you know, acquaintances, and I tell them, hey, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually going to be leaving Idaho. I'm moving to Wisconsin to become a pastor. I'm very excited about this. I was like 26 at the time. And he says, and I could tell, he, he kind of, I think he fancied himself as a father figure in my life. And he's like, oh, Paul, I've been wanting to have a conversation with you since I met you. I see your fervor for the Lord. I think it's wonderful. I see that you want kids to know Jesus. And son, have you ever considered the LDS church? And I'm like, oh, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. I, I cannot wait. And so I just started going, and yes, I have thought of the LDS church. And did you know? And did you know? And did you know? And all of a sudden, Glenn's like, what? And I'm, and I'm walking him as he's backing to his car, and he just wants to get away from me at this point. And I won't let him shut the car door. I'm standing between the car door and him, and I'm still telling him, did you know that Joseph Smith this? And did you know the Book of Mormon that? And finally, he just pulls out, and he just, and it's like, the last thing I said to, to Glenn was, I said, you know, Glenn, it's one thing to have belief, right? There's a point in everyone's faith journey where there is a point where you have to leap. But to leap in the face of copious amounts of readily available data that clearly reveals that what you're believing is a lie, that's just foolishness. And I don't know what ever happened to Glenn. That was the last conversation I ever had with him. But I think if you ever talk with people who are from a cult or who, are, who are, have a false religion that they believe in, if you, can, if you get to a point, and especially with Mormons, I've noticed that you get to a point where you maybe you've had the theological or the doctrinal discussion, and then the, sort of the last go-to Hail Mary is, but if you just pray about it, and don't your heart, doesn't your heart burn? It gets reduced to this bizarre believism in the face of everything else, and if you just feel it, it must be true. No, no. A warm sensation in our hearts, an entirely subjective feeling is not faith. Faith is not something that we must privately and personally affirm regardless of whatever contrary public evidence exists. And so faith is not the opposite of, uh, base, uh, off, off, the opposite of evidence-based assessment of truth. Second thing faith is not is it's not an irrational leaping into darkness. It's, 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 and I know that there is a part of faith that is. There's a part of faith that's stepping out in faith. That's why it's called faith. But, but, but the biblical faith that we're called to is not an irrational leaping into darkness. And there's been so much abuse perpetrated under that understanding of faith over the years. Manipulation and, and abuse of people. I read this week that faith is not a, a conjured optimism. 
It's not a pull, a rabbit out of a hat, magical feel-goodism. Nor is faith aimlessly directed at some vague cosmic hope that affirms good karma will somehow prevail in the end. That's not what faith is. The author of this book rightly warns that true faith cannot be spontaneously generated on the basis of wishful thinking. True faith, biblical faith, is rooted in a concrete object. Biblical faith is not a general positive mindset or a blind optimism. True biblical faith is directed towards a defined object. The trustworthiness of the object is the substance of our faith. So if we want to grow in faith as believers, as followers of Christ, if we want to grow in faith, we should study and contemplate God's extraordinary reliability. And so that's what we do when we gather here on a Sunday morning. And when we open up the scriptures in daily devotions. And when we fellowship with other believers. We are contemplating the extraordinary reliability of God. We're not leaping into darkness. We're leaping into the arms of a creator who has revealed himself to us in his son. A trustworthy creator. A father who is for us. And we have to look as far as the cross to see what lengths he'll go to to assure that he is for us. It's not a blind optimism. It's an informed trust. And I think about that is in my role as a pastor sometimes. And I know sometimes like, I get confused in my mind of what is my role. Certainly I, I am to shepherd. We as a staff at Heritage, we shepherd our, our, our congregation. We'll sit with you and weep with you and walk with you and, and try to help you understand how to apply the gospel in different circumstances in life and how to live in light of truth. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Certainly all of us as we engage in this world, as we are aliens and sojourners here on planet Earth, as, as our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom and we're living here as sojourners, it's hard sometimes and, and certainly part of my role as a pastor of a small congregation is to is to help us apply a gospel lens to know how to live in light of truth but I also think the temptation might be for me sometimes is to become a social commentator and to just comment on on the morality of society or to comment on the the current events that are taking place and though there's a part of that that is my job which is applying scripture I think about this I think about you the, the men and women of heritage gather for an hour and a half every Sunday and and I know I trust you have rich devotional lives outside of Sunday morning I do I trust that you're learning to feed yourself spiritually but I know that you're gathered here uniquely to sit under the preached word in a unique way. I know that you're gathered corporately that we together can lift up our hearts and our minds and our voices to God in worship. And that's what corporate worship is. And so then the, the, the conviction in my heart for biblical preaching is just so elevated because it's like this is where we gaze our eyes on Jesus collectively. This is where we elevate the gospel and speak forth the truth of God over our lives. This is where we inform our faith. This is where we contemplate and study God's extraordinary reliability and I got 40 minutes on a Sunday to do my very best, as, as limited and as broken and as, and as faulty as I am as a man and as a preacher. That's my, my, my conviction is to the very best of my ability is just to hold him up and, and to speak forth the truth of who he is that we could just love him and believe him and, and, and put our lives in his hands. This is faith. Thirdly, faith is not merely an intellectual assent. Faith is not reduced simply to knowing the right things or believing the certain doctrines. Though that's a part of it, that's not, that's not exclusively what, what faith is. If that was the case, then those demons in Mark chapter 1 who said to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, we would say that they displayed faith. Or when James writes in James chapter 2, demons, he says, you believe in, that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. No, no. Yes, we must hold a certain intellectual 
truths. One of our core values as a church is, is right doctrine and biblical interpretation. So we hold that high. But this also we have to, that's not all that faith requires. It's not just an intellectual ascent. So we know what faith is not, okay? So I, I'm belaboring the point. Faith is not the opposite of the evidence. Faith is not an irrational leaping into the darkness. Faith is not merely an, an intellectual ascent. So what is it? What is faith? We got some words in our text today, but let me try to add different language. I'm borrowing from Michael Bates, or Matthew Bates, the author of that book I was telling you about. I think this is a pretty good definition of, of faith. I put it up on the board for you. Faith is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. I like that definition. I'm sure it's not perfect. Faith is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. Which means that faith is responding to our promise-making, promise-keeping God. It's carefully discerning our response to God and his reign through Christ over his kingdom. I like what Jeremy said last week in his preaching, in his sermon, as he, as he wrapped up chapter 10. Here's the definition Pastor Jeremy gave to our congregation last week about faith. So faith is active and ongoing trust in God that is demonstrated in obedient action. We're getting the idea. Faith is not some inward focused, conjured up, wishful thinking that my desires will come true. That is not faith. But rather, faith is a God-focused, biblically informed, rational trust in the promises of God in Christ. That's my definition. Faith is a God-focused, biblically informed, rational trust in the promises of God in Christ. I love what Kathy said this week as we were studying this passage together. She said, there is a difference between wishful hope and confident knowing. Ours is a confident knowing in the trusting, strong, loving arms of our Father. Big idea. Faith is not me-centered, wishful thinking, but God-focused trust. I wrote on the margin of my Bible this week, the center of faith is God, not man. The center of faith is God, not man. So that, with that being said, let's take a, a little deeper look at a few of these verses and try to suss out exactly what the author is saying. Again, we've got to remember the context of this book. And at the end of chapter 10, verse 39, is the author is telling his, his audience, he's including himself in them, that, that we are not the ones who are going to shrink back. We're not the ones who are going to fail to persevere. We're going to persevere. We're going to hold fast to Jesus. We're going to fix our eyes on him. We're going to draw near to him. We're going to anchor ourselves to him. And the author says at the end of chapter 10, the last verse, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. but We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. He said it to them then, and God by his Holy Spirit says it to us today. We church, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and who preserve their souls. Look with me again at verse one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you're gonna take notes, I have three points. Here's the first point today. Faith is certain in God's promises. Faith is certain in God's promises. Oftentimes when we come to verse 1, I've seen this used as like a, 
a, a comprehensive definition of faith biblically, but this really isn't a comprehensive definition of what faith is. Not all that can be said about faith is said in verse 1. But rather, the author here is explaining the nature of faith by explaining how faith works. What he says is, he says that faith is assured that what is hoped for will become a reality. He's saying faith is convinced that the unseen promises of God are going to be fulfilled. And he uses that word assurance. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, I encourage you to underline that word assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This is a word that no one can agree on, on how to interpret it. If you read through just a handful of translations, you're going to see that translations use a variety of words here. The Greek word is hypostasis, but, but we've, in our, in our English languages, we've used like KJV, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. NIV, faith is confidence in what we hope for. The NASB, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for. The New Living Translation says, faith is being sure we will get what we hope for. Now, although these words are all different, they all sort of have the same understanding. There is a there's a concreteness to these words. There's a solidity to these words. I like the KJV, the substance of things hoped for. That word, hypostasis, it literally means that which stands under or foundation. So there literally is a concreteness to how we understand this word. But it's a concreteness that is yet to be realized. Have you ever foolishly put your faith in something that is not concrete? Something that is wishy-washy and not stable. I can remember very clearly when my wife and I just got into ministry 22 years ago. And we moved to this little town in central Wisconsin. It was a resort town, 26 spring-fed lakes. And all the people from Chicago would come up and live on the lakes in the summertime. We were a destination city. Not really, but we thought we were. And, uh, and there was a gentleman that went to my church. His name was Chuck. I'm even going to say his name. Chuck, he went to my church. Uh, he was a guy who lived on the lake drove an Escalade, uh, just carried himself like someone with, of, of, of importance. And I was sort of, I don't know, I don't know, I was kind of enamored by him. He was an older guy, su- seemed super successful, like he had it all together. He was very kind and friendly and outgoing to our family. I'm like, I like this guy, cool. And then one day I remember, this is, again, this is 2002, he said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm going to come over and uh, I'm going to write you a check for $1,000 and then you write me a check for $1,000 and then we'll both cash it, but it'll take a couple days for it to clear and then you'll, you'll buy me a little bit of time. And I was pretty sure that wasn't ethical. But I was like so enamored by this guy. He spoke so eloquently. I'm like, okay. And I'm talking to Becky. I'm like, oh, we were dumb. Like you, this is before electronic banking and everything was real time. You could actually float checks back in the day. And I didn't know what, I, I didn't know what that meant. I was, I was a youth pastor living on pennies, feeding my family out of the food pantry in the church. And so Chuck came over and I, I wrote a check for the guy. And, 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 you know, he, oh, it's fine, it's fine. You can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And, he, and he, 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 he conveyed as if this was a ethical, sure, steady, trustworthy thing. And I had faith in this guy. And as time would tell, he was not worthy of trust or faith. He was, it was not concrete. He was unethical. He was dishonest. And I never got in trouble, but it was, it was disappointing to say the least. And I'm sure you have st- stories in your life, examples in your life of, of placing faith in something that did not deserve your faith. And that makes us hesitant and nervous, especially if it's happened on big, on big le- levels uh, with key relationships. But this picture of assurance that we have in, in our 
in our verse here, it is, it is concrete. It, you can take it to the bank. And, and there's this, this disagreement a little bit within translators on how much of this word is objective, you know, concrete and solid, and how much of this word, this word is subjective, where there's like, a, like an, uh, a not yet realized aspect to it, like a hopeful aspect to it. Is this term one of assured concreteness or one of subjective hope? I read one commentator writes, the subjective and objective tenses of the word here are not at odds. Because genuine faith does bring an assurance of what we hope for that is solid and substantive. I love that picture. In other words, subjective certainty in our hearts has an, objectively, has an objective solidity to it. There's a real certitude of this faith we're called to. Biblical faith is rooted in the utter trustworthiness of God. So trustworthy, in fact, that we can anchor our lives to Christ. We can set our feet on the firm foundation of the promises of God. I like how one commentator paraphrases this verse. Now, faith is a solid sureness, a substantial certitude in what people hope for. I think of what the author of Hebrews writes back in chapter 6 about Jesus. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. This is not a faith in faith. This is not a hope in hope. Not some ethereal positive thinking. This is an anchored, directed, objective, concrete, solid faith that holds fast to a promise-making and promise-keeping God. So what do we hope for then? If it's a, if it's a sure faith that is, that is confident of things to come, what are those things to come? For the Christian, what, what, what are we hoping for? What are these future promises that are so assured we can bank on them? Well, we hope for Christ's return. And all the more, as our world spirals into utter madness... We hope for Christ's return. As Paul says in Titus 2, as Christians, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can bank on it. We hope for the resurrection. Glorified bodies, free of decay and death and the effects of sin. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection, Paul says. Christ was raised first as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. That's our great hope, the resurrection of the dead, new bodies. We also hope for glorification. This is glorious moment when God forever and finally removes sins from the life of the saints for all of eternity. What a glorious hope. No more sin ever. John writes in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Christ, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, Christ, is pure. So we hope in the return of Christ. We hope in the resurrection. We hope for glorification. And we hope to reign with Christ. We're his heirs. Heirs to the kingdom. We reign with him. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, For if we endure, this is a call to endurance, if we endure, we also reign with him. John, the apostle, in Revelation 22, as he's painting a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal state, he says, at night, at night will be no more. There will be no need for sun or for lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they, the people of God, will reign forever and ever. So this is the hope of the Christian, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the glorification, the reigning with Christ. And our faith gives us inner certitude of these realities. That Christ will return. That we'll be given new bodies. That we're going to reign with him in heaven. Of glorification. The future promises are so trustworthy, so concrete, so objective that we can be assured of their substance today. This is the picture of faith. The author also says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. Again, that's a word that no one can agree on how to interpret. KJV, the evidence of things not seen. NIV, the assurance about what we do not see. The NLT is being sure of what we cannot see. The word here that's translated conviction, it just means a proof, that by which a thing is proved or tested. And so faith is convinced that what God promises will most certainly be fulfilled. Now listen, I talked about the future aspect of faith, but but what is unseen is not completely defined in terms of future promises. For the unseen realities also describe past realities. We believe in creation. The author gets into that in the next verse, in verse 3. We didn't see it, but we believe it. We believe in the present realities of God's existence. We believe in his faithfulness. We believe in his power. And so all that to simply say this. Biblical faith is not some vague, pie-in-the-sky, fingers crossed, rabbit out of the hat, good vibes, good karma, wishful thinking. It is the assurance of the promises of God. It is the substantive conviction that God has done and will do everything that he says he'll do. It's living today in light of those kingdom realities. It's living today as if the future promises are in the present. It's living in a way that unveils the unseen. It is absolute certitude. Faith is not me-centered, wishful thinking, but God-focused trust. The center of faith is God, not man. Secondly, look at verse 2. For by it, by this assured and convicted faith, for by it the people of old received their commendations. Verse 2 Encourage you to underline, circle, highlight, pay attention to that word commendation. And here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. Faith is commended by God. Faith is commended by God. True faith, biblical faith, is commended by God. That word commendation, it's got this aspect to it that means to bear witness or to affirm someone. So the picture here is that those who demonstrate biblical faith... Those who are, in fact, assured of things hoped for and who have a conviction of things not seen, they are commended by God. They're praised, they're complimented, they're applauded. Other translations use the word approved. They are approved by God, which means that God bears witness on behalf of their faithfulness. God affirms their faith as tried and true. God gives his approval to the people with this kind of faith, for they've gained it. And I just... And I think about how easy and how often it is in our lives that we settle for second-rate, two-bit commendation. 
how easy it is that we turn aside to, from pursuit of a life of faith that is pleasing to God that will garner the commendation of God and instead we turn to the left and we turn to the right and we look for the affirmation from, from those temporal voices that provide nothing of substance to our lives. Whether that be a financial commendation, a relational commendation, a professional commendation, you know, all the way down to just the silliness of, of social media attention. It's just so tempting and it's just, it's immediate and it's so hard. The most faithful of people who have the, the most developed theology and deep love for the Lord, we get caught up in looking for commendation in all the wrong places. But this is the commendation that matters. For by it, by our faith, the people of old received their commendation. Their commendation was the ultimate verdict for these saints that we are then going to study moving through the 11th chapter of Hebrews. They stood before the living God. Commendation is that which comes at judgment. Everyone's going to stand before God. Every human being who's ever lived will stand before God. And those who are in Christ are commended. We have the righteousness of Christ declaring us innocent. The imputation of Christ given to us that have trusted in him. There will be those who are commended in Christ and then there will be those who are condemned without him. And then the author over the next several verses, he walks us through these saints of old. He starts all the way back in the fourth chapter of Genesis and begins to walk us through Genesis and Exodus and through the Old Testament, highlighting certain people who modeled this sort of commend-worthy faith. We read about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We read of Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. I'm mindful of what the Apostle Paul says about Abraham. He says that Abraham, in Romans chapter 4, verse 9, that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So there is this forward-looking faith in these Old Testament saints. In fact, later on in chapter 11, as the author is talking about Moses... Now Moses, 1,600 years or so before the birth of Jesus, the author of Hebrews, in commenting on the life of Moses, he says in Hebrews 11:26 that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So there's this amazing commentary that the God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired the author of Hebrews to go back and look at Moses and say, Moses was living in anticipation of Jesus Christ. Our scriptures are Christ-centered. And it's by this faith that he was commended by God. I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 20. Do you remember the scene? He's been resurrected. And the disciples are not sure what to do with, with the news of the resurrection. In chapter 20 of, of John, uh, the, you get this picture of, of Thomas, who's with some of the apostles who come, become convinced of the resurrection. They've encountered the risen Christ. Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas makes this audacious claim in, in John 20, verse 25. He says, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger in the mark of the nails, uh, uh, and I, I put my hands in the, the hole on his side where the spear went through, I'll never believe. And then eight days later, we read that all of a sudden Jesus was among his disciples. And he walks up to Thomas and he says to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands? Put your hand into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he's convinced. And then Jesus says these incredible words in John 20, verse 29. 
He says, have you, he says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I always interpreted that like I eisegeted that. I always thought that was talking about me. I believe and I have not seen him. I'm being commended by Jesus. But like I was convicted this week because I think Jesus is speaking backwards through history there. I think he's looking back at these people we're, we're reading about in Genesis or in Hebrews chapter 11. These saints of old who lived by faith and were commended for a faith having never seen Jesus. But they had an anticipation, a forward pointing hope, which is what we're going to read in chapter 11. And so the, the saints of old received God's commendation by faith and likewise us today, we too receive commendation, God's commendation by faith. There's that really well-known parable in Matthew 25 where it's, it's called the parable of the talents. And Jesus is speaking in story, like in, 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 in elongated metaphor to try to explain what it's like in his kingdom. And, and, and he's preparing his disciples for when he ascends and leaves them. He's preparing the church to live faithfully in his absence between his ascension and his return. And, and in the story, he says there was a master who had three servants. He gave one five talents, one two talents, one one talent. He told them to invest the talents in his absence. And so the master left. And the two with the five talents and the two invested wisely. The guy with one talent buried his talent and didn't do anything with it. And he got rebuked by the master. But when the master came to the two servants who wisely stewarded and invested what they'd been given, he commended them. You know the story. Well done, good and faithful servant, he said. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a picture of a life of faith. Faith is receiving the blessings of God, salvation through his son, citizenship in his kingdom, God's provision of gifts and abilities and resources, and it's aligning our lives to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus. It's stewarding the whole of ourselves, our possessions, and everything that we are for his purposes and for his glory, that we too one day will stand in the presence of him, the presence of King Jesus, and we'll receive his commendation. Well done good and faithful servant. When I first got in ministry, there was this older couple that I, first I got in ministry as a youth pastor and, and there hadn't been a strong youth ministry in this church. And so I asked the leadership, hey, is who, who in our church might be good student leaders that could help me in my youth ministry? And they pointed me to the younger people in church. And I met this guy named Matt and his wife, Missy. Great people. They became great volunteers. Actually, Matt went on to become a pastor, and now he's been a pastor for the last 15 years. But Matt and Missy were great volunteer leaders. I loved them, leaned on them a lot. But then Matt told me one day, he's like, hey, you know, my dad, he goes, he goes to this church, and him and my mom are looking for a place to belong. And Larry and Shar at that time, you know, they were older. Well, it seemed older then. Uh, <laughs> They're a young couple, uh, and... Uh, Dang. Uh, and, and so I went to Larry and Shar, and, you know, he worked in a foundry, and Shar was kind of a stay-at-home mom. And I said, hey, you guys want to be part of the student ministry? And they're like, yeah, we just want to serve behind the scenes. We just want to take out garbage, make coffee for kids. That's all we want to do. I'm like, great, awesome. Be a part of it. And Larry and Shar stepped in, and for about like 11 minutes, they, they served behind the scenes. But the kids loved them. Larry had had a troubled youth. Shard had a troubled youth. So they had, they had a, a love for, Larry used to say, I love for the bad boys and girls. And we had a small group in his house where there would be like 30 kids, like skateboarder kids, kids on the fringe, loved Larry and Shar's house. They opened up their home. And Larry, though he wasn't made of money, he worked at a foundry there, a kind of hand to mouth. Anytime he had extra money, he was buying stuff for the kids, buying stuff for the youth ministry, painting the walls. They were just this faithful family who faithfully served and in ways that were kind of hidden and unseen. I mean, 
they were serving in a student ministry in a small Wisconsin town, but Larry passed away last week. And when he passed away, I was watching the comments on, on, on social media. And it's all those kids that were crammed into their living room 20 years ago. They're now in their late 30s. And one of them quoted this verse in one of the comments on social media. And I thought, yes, here is a faithful man who gave what he had to live out his faith in an active way, cling to the promises of God. This is a picture of faith. Faith is not me-centered wishful thinking, but God-focused trust. The center of faith is God, not man. Lastly, let's look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Last thing I'd encourage you to write down, the third point of my teaching today is that faith is confident in God as creator. And yes, I'm proud that all of our words today start with C. Faith is confident in God as creator. And the author here is saying like faith is this cosmic thing. It's this massive thing. When we lift our eyes to the created universe, we are practicing faith. And it takes a willful act of rebellion to observe creation and deny the creator. That's what Paul says as much in Romans 1.20. This morning as I was driving down the hill, I was coming to work and it was still dark. And the horizon was just beginning to get light on the eastern horizon. Did you, were any of you up before the sun rose today? Did you see the moon today? Oh, wasn't that stunning, Braxton? It was just beautiful. And I'm driving down the hill and I'm looking at the moon. It's hovering above the Siskiyous and I'm just like, wow, God, that is just incredibly beautiful. And I, mean, I knew what I was going to be teaching in verse 3 here. So I, I found myself just thinking about the grandeur of God and the magnitude of our universe. And I, by no means, I know if Tony Abbott's here, he's a, he teaches astronomy at the collegiate level. And I'm by no means an astronomer. But I, I can Google some stuff. And... Uh, you know, just to think of the magnitude of our universe is just insane. We just, we cannot fathom. 93 billion light years, they think. That's what, how, how vast our universe is. And, and, and so one light year, it takes, it, so the distance light travels over the course of a year is 5.88 trillion miles. And so we begin to understand the, and our universe is 93 billion light years across. So it's, and the furthest human beings have ever traveled from planet Earth is 1.3 light seconds. So we begin to realize how teeny we are. And it's, you know, I, I, like, I love to backpack, as you know, and one of the greatest things about backpacking is to get up around 7,000, 8,000 feet. You're up above all the atmospheric pressure. You're back away from all the ambient light in those clear, crystal clear, cool summer nights in the mountains. You walk it on a rock that juts out on a, on a, on a, on a lake, an alpine lake, and you land the, the rocks in the middle of the night and you look up at the stars and it's like you're in a planetarium. It's silent and it's beautiful and the gleaming stars pierce through your eyes. And you get a sense of how small you really are and how big creator God really is. I read this week that even the, the most, uh, the, the, the best vision can only really observe with the naked eye about 10,000 stars at night. Even on the clearest and darkest of nights. And some think that there's as many as 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy... And if we can only see 10,000 of them, that means when you and I gaze at the stars in the most pristine of environments, we're seeing 0.000002% of the stars that exist in our galaxy. And just those 10,000 stars make us feel small. And then we realize there's some 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. Which means there are more stars in the universe, literally, than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. 
we begin to get a sense of the grandeur of our creator God. We begin to see how small we really are and how big he really is. And not just the universe just isn't big, but in the 93 billion light year width hand of God, he holds it all. He holds all of it in his hand. And he spoke it into existence with his very words. Man, when we consider the greatness of our universe and, and then when you consider the beauty of and the complexity of the microscopic molecular realities all around us and you see the beauty of it all, that love exists and sacrifice exists, uh, it, it just all causes us to praise God. I had a scientist friend who used to be the dean of the botany department at University of Madison, and he used to say that science is the wonderful gift that God has given us to observe all that he's created. But, as we know, many lift their eyes to the night sky when they're backpacking in the Russians in Northern California, and they refuse to praise God, somehow managing to think their way away from Creator God. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans 1. He says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so those who deny creator God are without excuse, Paul says. So I was, I was reading and studying this last verse this week, and I, I stumbled upon a marvelous story. This is not an original story, but it's a great illustration. Imagine, if you will, there was a brave uh, population of mice that lived in a piano. These mice lived all their lives inside this piano. And the music of the instrument filled the darkness with a beautiful melody over all these mice. These piano mice, they drew comfort from the wonder of who was creating such a marvelous sound. They thought someone above but yet close to them they loved to think of this great piano player whom they could not see. One day a brave mouse climbed deeper into the piano and he discovered a number of tightly stretched wires of various widths and lengths. And he noticed as the melody flowed through the piano, the wires vibrated and trembled. So he returned to his mice friends and he told his mice friends about what he had discovered. And the mice began to revise their old beliefs. Some began to abandon the idea of the great unseen player. Then later on, another brave mouse added new insight to this evolving and unfolding theory. Great hammers were dancing and leaping about upon these wires. That's where the music was coming from. Thus, that's where the glorious melody came. And the theories became more and more complicated from that point on. The piano world was reduced to a combination of mechanical and mathematical. The great unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, obsolete, outdated. However, the pianist continued to play. For the one who believes in the great pianist, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Those of us who believe and trust in a great creator, we begin our worldview with faith. We look around at the things that have been created and we say, what beautiful hand has created these things? What beautiful mind has spoken these things into existence? We were not witnesses to creation. We come to understand creation by faith. That's the author's point. Like the psalmist in Psalm 33, we say, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, they are their host. For he spoke and they came to be. He commanded 
and they stood firm. Now, atheists and Christian alike believe the universe came from somewhere. Both know that one time there was nothing and then there was something. As Christians, we believe that God spoke and from nothing came something, ex nihilo. As we gaze to the heavens, as we consider their grandeur, as we look at all 10 octillion stars, we, we, we see them shouting their praises to God. By faith, we know for certainty that every star was created by God. Which means, by the way, as Sam Peck pointed out this week in our study, that there is nothing more true and more real than the Word of God. It predates creation. It predates the stars. There is nothing more true, more solid, more sure, more concrete than the Word of God. Faith is not me-centered wishful thinking, but a God-focused trust. The center of faith is God, not man. Faith is certain in the promises of God. Faith is commended by God, and faith is confident in God as creator. Patricio pointed out this week that Paul writes in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As mindful as I'm thinking of the, the author here of Hebrews, he talks about, he gives warnings, these five warnings throughout this beautiful portrait of Christ. And these warnings that we find dotted throughout the book of Hebrews, it's warning the audience against turning away, against Falling back against giving up, against apostasy, which is to reject Christ and turn away from the faith. The opposite of faith is apostasy. The opposite of faith is turning away from God. The author of the book of Hebrews, he's warning against apostasy. These warnings are embedded in this ongoing exhortation. The author does not tell his audience to look to themselves. He does not tell them to summon up all their inner strength. He doesn't tell them to pull up their bootstraps or stiffen their upper lip to grind it out till the end. No, no, no. The author, he warns of apostasy. He warns about the threat of giving up. And then he provides instruction to his people. Them then, and God by his infinite beautiful wisdom provides these words for us today. Instructions for what it looks like for us to endure in the faith. What it looks like for us as Christians to endure. How it is we can be found trusting him to the end. We fix our eyes on him. We hold fast to him. We draw near to him. We anchor ourselves to him. He has proven himself to be more than worthy to fill our, to, to, for our full trust. So faith means that we, we put our trust in what he has promised, even, even if it feels impossible because we know with God all things are possible. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for these few verses. I'm so grateful that you have provided these verses for us this morning. God, I pray that you, would, that you would infuse new and fresh God-focused faith into our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to, to deeply understand these truths, that, that faith is not me-centered, wishful thinking, but it's God-focused trust. The center of faith is not me, but you. God, help us to see your worthiness, your sufficiency, your trustworthiness. God, that we would, that we would hold fast to you with all of our, our might, that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would draw near to you, Lord, that, that you would be the sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. God, would you be glorified in and through our faith. Grow our faith. Be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today is Communion Sunday. And how awesome that our Lord, on the night that he was betrayed, he gave the church an ordinance. 
he was going to go to the cross? Is, is God, the incarnation is such a miracle that this creator God who, whose hand width is 93 billion light years, that he would somehow, some way become human flesh, fully God, fully man, dwell among us, sinless, spotless sacrifice, would willingly go to the cross in our place, that the, the, the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus would be the very means by which we have salvation and healing and restoration and future hope. It's incredible that he made himself, that, that God, the God of the universe who is outside of time, entered dateable history and dwelt among us, that we could know him. It's just the miracle of miracles. It's the it's the most worship-worthy truth I could even imagine. And, and then Jesus, he hung on a cross, and the wrath that your sin deserves and my sin deserves was poured out upon him. He paid the penalty for sin and death. He overcame sin and death. He rose to life. He ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now. He's interceding for us, mediating on our behalf, the author of Hebrews says. And he's given us an ordinance. On the night when he was betrayed, he told his disciples in the future church to do this. How awesome, as we wrestle with the concreteness of faith, he's given us a concrete ordinance as a symbol of our faith, as a reminder of what it is we believe and where our hope lies. We walk forward today, we grab this little wafer, which is symbolic of the body of Christ broken for us. We grab this cup of juice, which is symbolic of the blood of Christ, which was spilled for us, by which we have been cleansed. And we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, not in isolation, but in community with one another, as a statement of faith and an act of worship. I'm going to pray here in a minute. The band's going to play a couple of songs. I'm going to invite you, church, to, to come forward. If you could come forward down, down these two center aisles and return to your seats to the outside aisles, I want to encourage you to come forward and to take the elements. When you're ready, you can take them back to your seat and take them with your family. You can hold on to them for a while. You can take them when you're here. Just take them back. Take the cup with you. You can throw up the cup away when you leave. But I want to encourage you with, with thoughtfulness and with worship and with this vision of faith in your mind to come forward and observe the Lord's Supper today. Let me pray. Father, would you be glorified and honored today as we partake of these elements? God, would it inform our faith? And God, I, I'm mindful this morning of those men and women who may be in this place today who've never publicly confessed you as Lord. They've never stood up and walked forward in response to the gospel. God, I pray that today they would feel the freedom to do so. God, I pray today that by your spirit, those men and women who may be here today who've never fully trusted you, have never taken communion as a statement of faith, as an act of worship, that God, today would be that day where they turn their hearts to you, their eyes to you, they hold fast to you, proclaim you as their Lord and Savior. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.